Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. Bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. I mean, it's just bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to The Bullshit Filter, episode 3.13 of our War on Drugs series. Uh, My name is Cameron Riley. And I'm Ray Harris. Hey, Ray, uh, have you noticed that I added a few more bullshit uh, 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 quotes into the intro music recently. I did, and every time I hear the Bill Nye one, I have to put it on mute and just laugh out loud, because I think that's hilarious. <laughs> it's yeah, great, isn't yeah, absolutely. it? Absolutely. Bill Nye, what a, what a legend. <laughs> uh, and the other ones in there, uh, there's, a, there's a David Lynch. Thank you to whoever sent that to me. Somebody did uh, in the last month or so. One of our listeners said, hey, here's another bullshit clip. Nothing better than David Lynch swearing. <laughs> um, and uh, what's the one is, uh, I think, uh, Guy from the yeah. Wire. Um, uh, so um, last time, Ray, on our War on Drugs uh, show, mm-hmm. we, we, t- we talked about Billie Holiday. Yes. Lady Day, uh, she was known jazz blues singer, persecuted by Harry Anslinger and his narcotics agents for decades. Um, Even on her deathbed in the Metropolitan Hospital, 1959, she's uh, surrounded by narcs um, because they said there was a little bit of, I think, uh, heroin. Mm Mm-hmm. On her position when she went when she went into hospital to die. Right. And so they were still if she hadn't died, they were going to uh uh, uh put her in front of a judge uh the next day. So lucky for her at age forty four, nine fifty nine. She died. Yeah, I just, again, I think, I can't remember how much detail we gave last time, but the agents are the one who took her off the critical list, not the doctors. They said, give up your dealer. She went into withdrawal. The doctors came in and gave her some methadone for 10 days. She started to get better. What do the agents do? They stop the treatment, and that was the beginning of the end for her. Again, these guys way abusive authority making decisions that only doctors should be making. And like you said, they were, they were out to persecute her and they hounded her until her last breath. So um, what we're going to talk about in today's episode is uh, we're going to go back in time a little bit back to the thirties to talk about something that Harry managed to make happen in the late thirties, Harry Anslinger. And this is the marijuana tax act. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time, an inordinate amount of time this week, trying to get my head around mm-hmm. this. Um, and so it's, I'm, I'm still not entirely sure that I understand the point of this, um, but let's let's work through it and see if we can figure it out. So as as we've already explained, in the 30s, you know, Harry, Harry took on the job as the head of the Bureau of Narcotics in 1930 after his... Uh, predecessor <laughs> got himself in a little bit of trouble for being corrupt. Um, 
and so, and then Harry worked out quite early on that, you know, you can't really build a, a, a burgeoning department of, of, of agents based on opium and cocaine and heroin because, quite frankly, not many people are using yeah. hard drugs. And he decided to make cannabis or marijuana, as he preferred to call it, because it sounded more Mexican, uh, his new focus, despite the fact that most people had never heard of it. And as I do, I I jumped into newspapers.com, the newspaper archive site, uh, this week and searched for marijuana-related news stories uh, prior to you know the early 30s and there were there were very few um, very very few stories hitting the media couple of the things that we've talked about the big oh some Mexican guy smoked uh, loco weed and then murdered his family that there were a couple of the stories that that, that we know that Harry saw and that kind of inspired him it seems but uh, very very few stories in the media. Um, you know, mostly the ones that are there, yellow journalism, exploitative kind of stuff, usually about rapey Negroes and Mexicans with superhuman strength, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, the yeah. next Marvel film. But up until... Yeah. Up and- <laughs> <laughs> I think Cheech and Chong already made that in the 70s. Uh- <laughs> Mexican-American... <laughs> Go to night school and take Spanish and get a B. Uh, but uh, I would go see that Marvel yeah. film uh, if it was about raping Negroes <laughs> no. and Mexicans with superhuman strength, um, super smoking weed to get superpowers. Sounds like a Kevin Smith yeah. film, actually. It's called Light Em Up. You know, yeah. uh, fat nerd. Uh, takes a couple of puffs on a yeah. joint, gets superhuman powers. This is a fat man and blunt man and chronic <laughs> is actually does Kevin Smith and, and uh, Jay's yeah. uh, superhero, uh, uh, what? The superheroes that in, in Chasing Amy, I think, Ben, ben Affleck and Jason Lee's characters uh, had written a comic based on Bo- uh, Silent Bob and Jay, and they call it Blunt, Blunt Man and Chronic. And so this has already been done. <laughs> there Dang. you go. Well, like, speaking of Kevin Smith, um, you, did you see he had a heart attack like a yeah. uh, month, five, six weeks ago? Um, that that really, really shocked me. I mean, not, it, it didn't because he's even though he's lost a lot of weight in the last couple of years, going on a low sugar, low um, carb diet, um, he's still a bit of a fat dude, yeah. um, but he's my he's my age. And, yeah. and he's been, you know, uh, uh, Kevin's kind of been, uh, uh, we, we've been inspirations to each other, quite frankly, Kevin and I. Really? Um, you know, his films inspired me in my 20s, and then I launched the podcast network in my mid-30s, and then he launched his own podcast network That's true. a few years later. And, and I know that he was, you know, he, he was looking at me and he was like, well, Cam, if Cam you can know, do it. Um, I'm, if Cam can do it, <laughs> I can do it, and I'll do it better because I have talent. And so, and fair enough. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and honestly, like our shows now, I think of our shows mm-hmm. as sort of a, we, 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 we sit in the intersection, you think of a Venn diagram, Ray. Yeah, on your, your right. left-hand circle is Dan Carlin. Your right-hand right. circle is Kevin Smith's podcasts, 
we sit in the middle. We're like a little bit Dan Carlin, right. a little bit Kevin Smith. I can see that. Um, yeah, that's kind of our that's that's our yeah. that's our niche. A little bit serious yeah. history. Yeah, a little bit dick <laughs> dick jokes and homoeroticism. <laughs> By the way, did you see that thing I posted up about the rainbow bus? Oh <laughs> no, I think I missed. I'm trying to remember. Shit, I don't what? Remember. Life of Caesar Facebook page. I posted a, a photo of a flyer from Lexington, Kentucky. Um, still talking about this rainbow bus. It's for straight men that uh, just want to act gay for a little while. You go on this bus, you get to act gay, talk gay, dress dress up, um, do a thing. Just, just yeah. there's no gay sex. No. You just get to do pretend you're gay. Everything but the sex. It's called the Rainbow Bus. I said this sounds like a real life version of our show. Basically, <laughs> just jump on and act gay for an hour, and then go home and That's fuck right. your wife. Um, where were we? 1937. Right. Uh, so, um, cannabis products were legal to sell in pharmacies and drugstores as long as they were properly labelled and regulated. They weren't taxed. They they didn't come under the Harrison Tax Act of 1914-15 because they weren't a narcotic. Right. And no one had heard of them, really, before uh, at that time. But in 1937, Harry Anslinger personally drafted a piece of legislation known as the Marijuana Tax Act, which was designed to make it nearly impossible to uh, manufacture or sell cannabis-related medications or cannabis marijuana products across the United States. Not making it illegal, but making it practically impossible. And we're going to explore the different ways that you can make something effectively impossible to get your hands on legally uh, without actually making it illegal. Because they, they learnt uh, something from prohibition. Right. Uh, 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 for a while, anyways, that prohibition doesn't work. So they weren't prohibiting it. They were just making it really fucking hard to get. <laughs> yeah, and they were taking baby steps. Like in and I and just let me know if I'm going too far too fast. Like in Vegas uh, in 1935, um, he um, received support from the president, uh, President Roosevelt, for the adoption of the Uniform State Narcotic Act, which was. Did you just say wait, wait? <laughs> did you just say Roosevelt? Roosevelt, yeah. Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt, sorry. No. I, I get I had tend to get fancy when I speak about FDR. Which which one of us is the dumb Aussie man? No. I used I used to call it Roosevelt and I got like corrected Roosevelt. by him. I'm gonna promote him. <laughs> Roosevelt. Yeah, please. Anyway. We you know, we 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 had a president of Australia once who was Captain Kanga Roosevelt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It was a kid show that I watched, Captain Kangaroo. I wonder if he then went over there and became a, a politician. Interesting. Yes. Go back to Roosevelt, if okay. you will. So Roosevelt, um, he, he got he got the president's support for the adoption of the Uniform State Narcotic Act, um, state laws that included the regulations of cannabis. And this was developed by the National Conference of Commissioners and 
on uniform state laws in 1934. Again, like you were saying, they're building up to this. You just can't come and ban it, make it illegal. you got to work your way up to it. They were trying to fill in the holes from the Harrison Act of 1914-1915. The act was a revenue-producing act, and while it provided for penalties for violations, this is the important part, it did not give authority to the states to exercise police power in regarding either seizures of drugs used in illicit illicit trade or punishment for those the responsible. So again, so he's working up to it. He's got the support of the president. They're trying to drip by drip, tighten the laws against drugs until they can get to a point where they can pretty much go after them. But again, in the 1930s, like you said, he is working on this. He is, he is really get, getting into stride. Yeah, we'll talk about the legal framework in a second, but uh, I want to talk about the congressional hearings for this piece of legislation. Um, This went on for like six months, right? The the congressional hearings went on for like six months? Um, I don't have it in my notes uh, how long it went on for. Five days. Five days. Yeah, I thought it was about that, about a week. Yeah. Yeah. Harry not only drafted the legislation, but also participated in the congressional hearings, and I've read the transcripts of that. Um, But, you know, really interestingly, during these congressional hearings uh, into the legislation, there were only 12 testimonies Mm. for the entire discussion about marijuana. People arguing uh, the for and against cases right. for tightening up restrictions on cannabis. Twelve. They, they, they were determining whether or not they should pass this piece of legislation. They had 12 people, <laughs> talk, uh, one of which was Harry, who wrote it. It's 11. All right. Out, out, of, out of the total 12 witnesses, seven of them were from the Narcotics Bureau. Okay. I wonder what they're going to say. Four were from different private businesses. Only one was a medical official. Oh, God. (laughs) Jeez. They're they're trying to figure out whether or not they should make it next to impossible for pharmacists and doctors to give people cannabis-based medications, and they they, they, they only have one medical witness. Now, that one medical witness... Mm -hmm was the Legislative Council of, of the AMA, the American Medical Association, a guy by the name of Dr. William Woodward. Nice. Um, parents obviously hated him. William Woodward. <laughs> WW. What's your name? William Woodward. William, William Woodward. Just William call Woodward. me Bill. Bill Wood. <laughs> Bill Wood. <laughs> oh, and trust me, Bill Wood. Oh, Wood. yeah. Woody. Just call me Woody. Yeah. Woody. Um... He uh, he was the only uh, person representing the, the the medical profession, and he said, "This is all a bunch of shit." <laughs> this legislation. <laughs> he 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 opposed the whole thing. Yeah. Challenged the moral focus focus of it. Um, said that uh, the claims uh, that they were putting forward about marijuana wasn't based on empirical evidence and uh, said that, in fact, there was no evidence that he was aware of coming out of either the Bureau of Mental Health or the Public Health Service that marijuana was a problem. Yeah. He concluded marijuana was largely an unknown quantity 
but might have important uses in medicine and psychology. For this reason alone, it should not be taxed prohibitively. And, of course, uh, the Bureau basically attacked him and uh, ridiculed him, accused him of being insensitive to the medical and moral needs of Americans. Yeah, bullshit. Yeah, so so he goes on to these people. It's like, you're, you're going to cover this for five days. You don't give me enough time to prepare. Like you said, he doubted the claims that they made about addiction, about violence, about over over uh, usage. And he said, in fact, most people, don't. the doctors don't even know the term marijuana. They're used to cannabis. So when you pass this bill, a lot of the medical profession may not even realize they're losing cannabis. This is all a crock of shit. But when you're outnumbered 11 to 1, you can imagine which way... Which which way this is going to go. One medical professional gives testimony and he says, this is bullshit, don't do it. And they go, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you, doctor. Fuck you, sir. Yeah. But fuck you nonetheless. It was, it was uh, cops, basically, uh, and yeah. people with vested interests that uh, Congress used as witnesses. So I'm just trying to cut a tag out of my shirts. But, you know, tags, they put tags on the inside yeah. of shirts with buttons and shit. While you're doing like, that. How do they do that? While yeah. you're doing that, Dr. Woody also said that, look, you're passing this bill based on different reports and hearings that, again, um, you haven't given me time to read through and so I can refute. Uh, Anslinger, when he, when he uh, testified, also referred to the International Opium Convention from 1928 that said that cannabis was a drug and not a medicine. But again, that wasn't backed up by science either. And that by this time, all the states had some kind of laws on the books against uh, the improper use of cannabis. But the reason they did was because he pushed them through in the 1930s and he got FDR's help. And so so he can cite this as a reference point, but it's something that he pushed through. And because FDR was so popular when he first came into office and he, and he gives a radio address, the states pretty much go along with him to give him a chance because he's cashing his political capital. So this guy doesn't bring any science and he's also bringing laws that weren't based on any science. But it doesn't, doesn't matter because he now has the momentum and he has... I think he just had the ability to deliver information that people felt they can trust. Yeah, I've got some. Um, uh, there's an interesting quote from the from Harry's um, testimony in front of the uh, committee. Um, Mister Dingell asks Harry, "I'm just wondering whether the marijuana addict graduates." into a heroin, an opium, or a cocaine user, basically asking, is it a gateway drug to harder drugs? Anslinger replied, no, sir, I have not heard of a case of that kind. I think it is an entirely different class. The marijuana addict does not go in that direction. So in 1937, he's, he's... trying to get it basically uh, uh, eradicated from society, but he doesn't believe it's a gateway drug. Now, now as we'll see uh, in a couple of episodes from now, uh, in 1970, Harry uh, was part of a Playboy uh, panel on drugs, which uh, I read uh, uh, last night. I had to go through like 20, 20 copies of Playboy. <laughs> From uh, the sixty-nine seventy, yeah, I did. Just to uh, to get get in context, keep those receipts. Context, keep those receipts so you can use them for tax purposes. Yeah. Um, 
And then I posted, I found a thing on a Julius Caesar film starring John Gielgud that had a lot of big-tittied women. Uh, in a, and um, I posted photos of it on her Facebook page and I got kicked from Facebook. Facebook kicked me and warned me. But then, and, and, but then funnily enough, when I, somebody suggested it might have been my dick tickling uh, poster. And when I went back and had a look at the dick tickling post, that image had been removed by Facebook. Ah, that so explains I, why I was harassed by Facebook. I'm like, what did I do? Sorry, go ahead. I think uh, somebody complained about uh, the dick tickling poster. Huh. Uh, or enough people complained and Facebook uh, removed it and gave me a warning and threatened to shut down our Life of Caesar Facebook page. We don't um, know anybody with high enough morals to complain about it. It must have been an outside person because no listeners would complain. No. Uh, anywho... Um, so even Harry didn't think marijuana was a gateway drug uh, as of 1937. So the act gets signed into law by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Um, which, and it placed a tax on the sale of cannabis. Now, here's how it worked. Farmers could acquire a tax stamp mm-hmm. for the cultivation of fibre hemp. Right. So you basically had to go and buy, get a license. You had to buy a license if you wanted to grow fiber hemp, which was still uh, a, a relatively important crop at this stage. Um, they were farmers were being urged to grow fiber hemp uh, in the sort of lead up to World War Two. Mm-hmm. Doctors, physicians, would be charged a tax for prescribing cannabis. And pharmacists would have to pay a tax for selling cannabis. Now, the taxes weren't huge. There was an annual fee of $24 for importers, manufacturers, and cultivators. I think that's about $637 today adjusted for inflation, an annual fee. Mm-hmm. Not, right. not massive, but uh, yeah. you, you don't want to pay it if you don't have to. No one likes having to pay fees for shit. Um mm. There was a $1 fee for medical and research purposes. It's about $24 adjusted for inflation. And $3, $82 adjusted for inflation for industrial users. So relatively small right. fees, but, anno- but annoying, but relatively small. But, but it's but, money the government desperately needs. Go ahead. Yes, yes. But it's, this isn't about making money, I don't think. Right. Um, now, selling marijuana to a person who had previously paid the annual fee incurred a tax of a dollar per ounce or fraction thereof. Right. $24 in today's money. $24 an ounce tax. If you were selling it to a person who had paid the annual fee. Um, So everyone who was receiving it needed to pay a fee, uh, have a tax stamp as well. Um, But if you were selling it to a person who had not registered and paid the annual fee. It was $100, $1937 per ounce or fraction thereof, which is $2,200 adjusted for inflation per ounce. You, the physician or the pharmacist, let's say, had to pay if you were selling marijuana to somebody who didn't have a license to have marijuana. Get that stamp. So here's your baggie of weed, Ray. That'll be $50 uh, plus $2,200 tax. <laughs> you can keep it. It's almost 
It's almost like buying cigars in Australia. It's basically <laughs> the scenario we're in here. Right. Did you know we've given up cigars? Chrissy and I haven't had a cigar for over a month. Wow. Yeah, we used to we used to smoke daily. We just gave it up. I was like, "This is bullshit. I'm not paying these tax." The, you know, we, we just it was like 500 bucks for 10 sticks. It's ridiculous. So I gave up. Um, after 10 years of smoking cigars, pretty much uh, daily, we you, have just decided, "Fuck it." How you doing? How you doing with the cold turkey? Well, that's the thing. There is none. There's no addictive qualities to smoking cigars. Right. You know, we we actually we we actually have commented on that. Like we just. Okay, well, we don't go outside and have a cigar at night when we work. We just sit inside in the lounge and work. The only thing, the only thing that we've noticed is we get tired earlier. Ooh. We're struggling to stay awake at nine o'clock. Um, one good thing about the cigars and the nicotine is it helps you stay awake. So you know we were normally up till midnight, one a.m. So it, it helped. It helped that. Now I have to have a cup of tea instead um, right. and try, try and keep myself awake. And Chrissy just falls asleep <laughs> on the lounge. Um, uh, but it, 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 that's the only thing. There's been, there's been no withdrawal symptoms, no cravings, no urgings. I mean, we miss it because it was a habit that we yeah, enjoy. routine, right. But not a single physical withdrawal symptom after 10 years of daily smoking. Hmm. I bet, yeah. So there you go. For you. Although when we go to Europe, we're going to smoke them, assuming that they're less expensive in Europe than they are here. I don't know. When we were in Corsica 10 years ago, they were, but I don't know what they're like now. Um, Anywho, uh, now anyone selling cannabis without a tax license could get a fine of up to $2,000 in $1937. Damn. Now, if $100 is $2,200, so you times it by 22 $2,000 $2,000 times 22 is $44,000. So you get a fine of $44,000 and five years imprisonment. God, they were serious. Yeah. So get that stamp. So I don't... Get that sticker. So I don't... you got to get the stamp. Now, I don't think it's about collect, collecting tax. I think it's about just making it hard to sell it. Now, here's the thing. There were also excessive regulations. So check this out. Doctors who wanted to purchase the $1 tax stamp so they could prescribe it for patients, had to report to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in a sworn and attested statement for every single patient, revealing the name and address of the patient, the nature of his or her ailment, the dates and amounts that they had prescribed, etc., etc., for every patient they prescribe marijuana to, if they didn't do so immediately, both the doctor and the patient were liable to imprisonment and a heavy fine. Jeez. Which, which is why Dr. William Woodward, when he was giving his testimony, said, the burden of this bill is placed heavily on the doctors and pharmacists of this country because he knew what was coming, that they were going to be, I don't know what you want to call it, legislated or taxed right out of being able to give the people what they needed or wanted. Big Billy Woodward. Woodward. <laughs> Billy Woodward. Wood. Big Wood, W. Wood, Billy. How many Billies would Billy Woodward would? <laughs> um, so it, yeah. here's, here's the lesson, I think, in all of this, is you don't have to ban something 
to stop it. You just make it too expensive or too difficult. Yeah. You, you put hurdles in the way um, and people just go, oh, fuck it. Doctors are just like, oh, well, you know, even if they thought marijuana was the right thing to prescribe, they're going, well, fuck it, it's too hard. So where are they going to turn to? Booze. No, I don't know. uh, uh, Prescribing probably uh, man-made manufactured pharmaceuticals. Um, But it didn't criminalise, as you said earlier, the possession or usage of hemp, marijuana or cannabis. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have to because by 1937, most states in the US already had passed laws against possession. Right. As part of this sort of crazed ramp-up that Harry had been selling for the previous six or seven years about the Mexicans and the Negroes and superhuman strength and sex-crazed wives and all this kind of yeah. stuff. I got, um, I've, got, I've got some articles here. This is uh, the Monroe News Star from Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, September 6, 1937, Uncle Sam to begin attack upon marijuana. October 1st. Recent measure designed to smoke dealings in drug out in open. Uncle Sam, after years of urging and procrastination, will soon open his attack upon this nation's only domestically produced drug, marijuana. For many years, the weed, which grows in backyards, vacant lots, and now in cultivated tracks, has generally been considered a narcotic. Uh, No, it's not. It's not a narcotic. In fact, it's the opposite of a narcotic, but (laughs) please continue. Federal narcotic laws, however, have never included marijuana among the forbidden drugs until Congress at the session recently closed, adopted the Marijuana Tax Act. Well, maybe you could call marijuana a narcotic. Does it put you to sleep? I think it puts you to sleep. Makes you giggle. Makes you loosey-goosey. Might put you to sleep if you smoke too much of it, I guess. All right. Um, Under the influence of marijuana, according to this paper, the will is destroyed and all power of directing and controlling thought is lost. Inhibitions are released. Freedom from care and exaggerated sense of strength are noticeable characteristics. A small person will commonly pick fights with <laughs> others of far greater size and strength with their best friends. It's because they got super Hallucination- strength now. Yeah. Hallucinations, subjects driving 80 or 90 miles an hour thinking they are doing 15 or 20, jumping <laughs> from third and fourth story windows thinking the drop is only three or four feet. Now... Go speed racer. This is the, this is the opposite of what people do on weed. <laughs> if they drive and you shouldn't smoke and drive, right. but if you do smoke and drive, yeah. my experience with friends, because you know, not me, but the friends, yeah. is they are doing fifteen or twenty, <laughs> thinking they're doing eighty or ninety. Even it's actually they, the opposite. Right. And half the time they don't put the car in drive anyway, so they're not really moving. They're just gunning it and, and not going anywhere, but they're having a great time. Uh, back to the news article. It was pointed out at hearings that violent crimes are common among persons under the influence of the drug and that it is used by hardened criminals to steal themselves to commit violent crimes. <clears throat> that the drug is reaching a class of people that has never been reached before. Now... Look, and this is going to be a common uh, thread for me during this series. Um, 
this is a, a a newspaper. This is this is this is your 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 free uh, media. You're, you're you're so proud of in the United States, mm-hmm. um, the Fourth Estate, and obviously they have done no research whatsoever into this. They 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 haven't gone out and, and interviewed medical professionals or researchers or psychiatrists or doctors to put together this story. There's no balance. And this is something I find across the board with the media coverage from this period, mm-hmm. and I've read a lot of it. Um, there is no even attempt at balanced coverage on this. Everything you read is just either straight up, you know, bullshit, yellow journalism, propaganda about raping Negroes or, or superhuman Mexicans, <laughs> or it's like they're taking a, a press release of Harry Anslinger's and just publishing yeah. it. Right. right? Yeah. And you have to you have to wonder why what's going on here? Why are the media running these stories? Is it just because they like a good little piece of salacious news? Because people go, "Oh my, did you see this, Harold?" And uh, you know, they, they fear fear sells papers uh, and news, as we know. So maybe it, it just worked to. Like all yellow journalism, it, it it just appealed to people's baser nature and 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 was help sell papers. Yeah. Um, or did the the proprietors of these papers, the the publishers, the editors, um, have uh, a vested interest uh, in in cracking down on marijuana? Uh, did their advertisers have a vested interest? Uh, did mm. they just do what the government told them? Um, we'll we'll have to drill into that further as we go and try and figure out why the media just lay down with this narrative and accepted it holus bolus um, up until until I tell you the first balanced piece of coverage I have come across so far right. is Playboy, mm-hmm. um, February nineteen seventy, uh, with Linda Forsyth on the cover. Um and a wonderful pictorial spread. Ah, oh, but anyway, back to the the drug. I think war. you mean Doctor. Nineteen seventy. No, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, so we'll we'll talk about the media coverage more as we go. Before we go on, I just wanted to go back to uh, uh, revisit something you said a minute ago about when um, Doctor Billy Woodward is being uh, questioned. No, no, excuse me. When uh, Anslinger is being questioned, and they ask him, "Do you think marijuana, cannabis, <clears throat> is a gateway drug to other harder substances?" And he, to my surprise, honestly said no. That that they weren't that he, that it's almost like apples and oranges. It doesn't do anything. But if you think about it, he doesn't have to say yes. He doesn't have to lie. He doesn't scare. He doesn't have to scare anybody because in March of 1939, after FDR goes on the radio and he supports Anslinger and Anslinger launches this nationwide media campaign, he's pretty much saying, if you smoke marijuana, there's a chance that it can instantly turn you insane. And he put out he put out um, either short films or whatever about young people smoking marijuana and then behaving recklessly, committing crimes, killing themselves, killing others, or just dying outright from taking a a couple of tokes on a joint. So again, so he doesn't have to lie at this point because he's got everybody so wrapped up in his nonsensical stories about marijuana. He doesn't need to add on to it. He can just say, this is bad enough as 
it is. And so at the, for this one particular time, he can be honest and say, no, it's not a gateway drug. Because we, as we go through tonight and do two more episodes, the lies that he's going to tell is just going to become more and more outrageous. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised to see him uh, acknowledge that. It was like, holy shit, Harry yeah. actually told the truth and said something that made sense. I'm shocked. <laughs> Getting back to this media coverage, like yeah. we know from the congressional hearings in 1937 that that the med- there were members of the medical profession, including the guy from the AMA, who was willing to come in and say this is this is a crock of shit. And yet again, the, you don't see any coverage of that in the media. These media stories. There's not like, well, you know, the FBN, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, says one thing. On the other hand, guy from the American Medical Association is calling bullshit on that. Uh, you don't see any of that kind of balanced coverage. So, and which, you know, I, I got to tell you, reminds me of what's going on in the United States with the media today. The whole Trump, Russia, Mueller uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. I go searching for balance in that stuff, and I can't find it anywhere. Um, well, you can, but you have to go to the extreme alt right news to find any really? sort of balancing. You have to, yeah, you have to go to Breitbart. You have to go to Fox News, uh, which <laughs> which is appalling. Um, uh, uh, and they don't provide balance either. They provide you know one perspective, but in the mainstream media. Like we just got the twelve month anniversary of the Mueller investigation, mm-hmm. and I, and I was looking through a variety of media sources over the last week. Maybe we'll talk about this on Bullshit Field of the News on Monday. Looking for the balance, looking for somebody to go. You know what? It's been a year. Um, where's the evidence of collusion? After a year with the resources that Mueller's got and all of the interviews that he's done, where is the evidence of collusion? Surely. He would have it by now. Oh, okay. Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels. That's a great. That's a great story. And the payment via Michael Cohen. All that. It's fascinating, and it might you know bring him down. I don't know. Trump down. But it's got nothing to do with collusion with Russia. Oh, they had meetings. Right. Yeah. Okay. We know they had meetings. But where's the evidence of collusion? I mean, I, I kind of agree with Rudy Giuliani. It's like, like piss will get off the pot, guys. Like you've been doing this for a year. Like, how fucking long does it take for you to find evidence uh, for something like this? And better, hey, what do I know? Yeah, no, I know. I agree but, with you. I mean, so far, as far as actual collusion, so far, we haven't seen everything. Uh, I mean, there's there's been no proof whatsoever with so far. However, we haven't seen everything that Mueller has got. And there are people that are being taken down who obviously crossed the line. But... Uh, Again, I think I think you're right, and and they admitted this week that Mueller said he's not going after an indictment of the president, but they certainly are taking down a lot of people around the president. So, anything is still possible, and it's it's just a very annoying waiting game. But uh, Mueller's not going anywhere for a while. Yeah, they're taking down people for unrelated things, right. I mean, corruption, lying to the FBI, lying to this or that, whatever. But that. And that's great. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'm happy for them to take these guys down, don't get me wrong. But what I'm talking about isn't whether or not Mueller knows him. I'm saying where's the media uh, balance saying, well, listen, he's been fucking on the job for a year and he's we've, we've seen nothing proving collusion. Maybe it's time to draw a line under this motherfucker and move on. Maybe maybe we were wrong. Maybe there was no collusion. Maybe Trump was right. <coughs> as hard as that furball would be for them to cough up. Right. Um, 
Anyway, we'll see. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Yeah. So the, me- the, me- the media coverage in this is pure propaganda, pure yellow journalism, uh, no, no fucking independent reporting, no balance uh, at all that I've been able to find. So the first person to be arrested after the passing of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 was precisely the kind of person that Harry had built his whole case around, a Mexican. Oh, God. A 23-year-old Mexican-American lad by the name of Moses Baca, who, name. for my money, looked like a young Billy Zane. Right. Uh <laughs> Unless you're Amanda Kipp, actually thinks he looks like Ray Harris. What? Uh, I said Ray Harris looks like George Costanza, and she said that's insulting. It is. But I couldn't figure out if it was insulting to George or to Ama- you, you. But know anyway. What? Fuck you. Amanda and I have a bond that you will never know or share, and you're jealous, and just, just stay the fuck out. So, But uh, Baca was a man of Mexican heritage. He was born in southern Colorado. But um, as, as we can tell, you know, when they passed this Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, um, you know, they're going after a certain type of people. They're not, for right now, going after rich white guys. They're going after people like this, and he probably wasn't very uh, hard to find, certainly with the priors that he's had, the, the run-ins with the law. Yeah, he definitely wasn't uh, an angel, this guy. <laughs> I think he'd been done for wife beating and yeah. uh, some B&Es and different things. Um, anyway, they, they, uh, had arrested him for something else and were tossing his joint, found a quarter ounce of cannabis tucked into his drawer, uh, at his rooming house in, uh, his room in a rooming house in Denver. Yeah. This is, uh, Colorado. Colorado, um, is where both of the first arrests happened. He served 18 months in Leavenworth. Now, keep in mind that Marijuana Tax Act did not penalise people for possession, but Colorado had had its own laws against possessing marijuana since 1929. Mm. Now, Barker wasn't selling weed either, but he went to jail anyway. Now, the guy who sentenced him to the judge, Judge John Foster Symes, made his disgust for cannabis uh, pretty evident during his uh, statements. He said, I consider marijuana the worst of all narcotics, far worse than the use of morphine or cocaine. Under its influence, men become beasts. Marijuana destroys life itself. I have no sympathy with those who sell this weed. Who does that sound like? That sounds like uh, Harry Anslinger. Right. And and the point that you just made, he wasn't selling it. He just had a little at home. The only time he wouldn't beat his wife when he was high, so she probably got him all the pot she could. Now, Anslinger, I'm not going to get too far ahead. Anslinger hears about this and and the other arrests that we're going to talk about. But Anslinger would later concoct a story that Baca had been involved in gunplay during this arrest, which wasn't true. It doesn't show up in any of the police reports and and it doesn't get confirmed later. Um, And it also, and the Denver Post, the local newspaper said that uh, Baca would get violent when he was on marijuana. So again, this is all bullshit. The newspaper writes, under its influence, Baca said he became a wild beast and two weeks ago tried to murder his wife, the mother of his three children. So again, Latino, 
cannabis, violence, murder, you put them all together. It doesn't matter that it's not true. This is the narrative that has become so patent, patent, patented at this point, everybody thinks it's gospel. So what have we learned so far? You can't trust the government. You can't trust the media. And now you've got a judge right. saying that marijuana is the worst of all narcotics. Well, obviously, he didn't know what the fuck he was talking about either. So you can't trust the law. You can't trust the government and you can't trust the media. I think it's pretty much everything you need to know. We're done here. Done. That's the end of the bullshit builder. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs> now, two days after Barker was arrested, the second guy ever arrested uh, for marijuana under the MTA anyway was um, a career criminal, Samuel Caldwell, 58 years old, who got four years for selling weed oh. this time... He actually was selling. Now, the story uh, at the time sort of was said that he was caught selling three joints to Barker. Right. But no. these two guys didn't even know each other. It was, both happened in Denver, but um, they were completely unrelated. He was selling to another guy, a guy called Claude Morgan. We don't know anything about him really, but he was caught in possession of four pounds of can- cannabis, which he'd smuggled in from Kansas. Ooh. Um, Caldwell uh, gets uh, arrested. He's sentenced by the same judge, John Foster Symes. Right. Um, Now, Anslinger was so passionate about uh, the passing of his 1937 law that he travelled to Denver from Washington, D.C., which back in the day was a two-day train ride Mm -hmm. in order to attend the trial and the sentencing of Caldwell and Backer. He wanted just, to be there. Yeah. He, he wanted to see the first victims of his law. And, and just to make this even more sad, um, even though um, Caldwell was a career uh, criminal, he had just started selling the cannabis to make money. He'd never smoked it. He was just a business guy, just, try, just trying to earn a living like everybody else, even though he should have you know, tried to do something else. But the point is, he, he's not high all the time. He's not, he's not under the influence. He's just a businessman. But he crossed the state line. He's got four pounds of it. And he gets found out. And because he was selling it and because he crossed the state line, this is going to be a much bigger deal than Baca. Yeah, but, you know, he said he shouldn't have been selling it, but the tax act had just come into um, mm-hmm. into effect. Yeah, he doesn't uh, know about it. You know, it, what he did would have been legal four days earlier. Right. <laughs> now it was illegal. Right. And he gets four years, uh, I think, in Leavenworth. Oh, God. Um, uh, Harry, after the after the uh, trial and sentencing, Harry told the Denver Post, marijuana has become our greatest problem. Mm. And people said, really? Because, you know, Hitler looks like he could be a big problem. <laughs> uh, we're still trying to get out of the Great Depression. Yeah. Uh, you sure it's marijuana? You know, we, we've, we've got fucking droughts and famines uh, right across the country, uh, massive unemployment. Uh, but no, and, and, and rampant crime, criminal underworld, uh, Al Capone, all these guys. But really, you think it's marijuana. Really, you, can, you, you want to back that up? He said, fuck you, shut up. <laughs> and, and right um, after that, he comes yeah. up with another stat that as far as I can tell, he just 
pulled out of his ass. He says, right after he says that marijuana has become our greatest problem, he says, its sale and use has found its way into at least 25 states. Could be, maybe not, but the point is he's just putting it out there, making the problem, problem seem bigger than it is, looming large, just to scare everybody. As long as they're afraid, they're going to turn to people like him to take care of it. Now, the ironic thing about all of this is the first marijuana arrests happened in Colorado. <laughs> the first the first state right. in the United States to legalise marijuana <laughs> 76 years later was... <laughs> yeah, that very state. Colorado. So you look, you've got to hand it for Col- to Colorado. They're on the cutting edge when it <laughs> comes to marijuana other. laws. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. First <laughs> to have it, first not to have it. Yeah. Uh, again. So, yeah, that's a big turnaround for Colorado. Did you read about what happened, the end of Samuel Caldwell? No, I don't think so. Just so again, he the other guy only get he serves less than eighteen months. Baca serves less than eighteen months. Caldwell serves uh, his four years. He gets out in early nineteen forty one, and he dies on June twenty fourth of that same year at age sixty one. So he spends pretty much the last four years of his life in prison for something that he probably didn't even know was illegal at the time. I did read that. Yeah. Now. The, the 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 biggest pushback, Harry and the FBN didn't get a lot of pushback from official sources. As we've seen in previous episodes, when the doctors tried to push back, he basically had them arrested, um, fined, thrown in jail. Um, the biggest pushback he got, uh, and we also had that um, uh, 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 senator from oh, yeah. um, Seattle, I think, gave a big speech. The biggest pushback he got apart from those guys um, came in 1944 from something called the LaGuardia Report. Mm -hmm. There was a committee, the LaGuardia Committee, was the first in-depth study of the effects of smoking marijuana in the United States. It was put together by New York's Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. Nice. Who wanted to uncover the real nature of, of the marijuana problem. Um, he was a big opponent of the 1937 Tax Act. Now, I didn't know a lot about Fiorello LaGuardia, mm-hmm. but I did some did some digging, and i got to tell you, pretty impressive motherfucker, LaGuardia, man. Do you know much about LaGuardia? No, just Is it a named, common thing? They, no, they just named an airport after him, but that's uh, all I know. That's all I knew too, and yeah. I'm going to get into his story in a bit. I want cool. to finish this by talking about LaGuardia. Um, but getting back to the report, um, so the, this investigation that he kicked off made um, sort of a thorough empirical approach to investigating the effects of smoking marijuana and basically contradicted all of the <laughs> FBN's claims. Uh, um, amongst the conclusions uh, in the LaGuardia report were this. The practice of smoking marijuana does not lead to addiction in the medical sense of the word. Marijuana is not the determining factor in the commission of major crimes. Marijuana smoking is not widespread among schoolchildren. And the publicity concerning the catastrophic effects of marijuana smoking in New York City is unfounded. Yeah. 
And, and I, there, I've read that same report. I just want to add on to that. One of the other conclusions was the consensus among marijuana smokers is that the use of the drug creates a definite feeling of adequacy. Not inadequacy, but adequacy. Your life is shit. You've been beaten down. You're harassed by the cops or whatever. You take a couple of hits. You feel pretty good. You're not hurting anybody. You're not violent. You're just laying there probably looking for a bag of chips. Uh, but again, I mean, this guy is having this thing examined by medical professionals who know what the fuck they're talking about. And, and point by point, like you said, they deconstruct Harry's assumptions that he's been pushing on people for years, if not decades at this point. I got to I got to mention that the report was prepared by the New York Academy of Medicine. Is that important? They spent 5 years yeah, putting it together, researching it. When it came out, Anslinger called it unscientific. <laughs> he lost his shit. Um here are the, the 13 uh, key findings from the LaGuardia Report. Marijuana, number one, marijuana is used extensively in the borough of Manhattan, but the problem is not as acute as it is reported to be in other sections of the United States. Two, the introduction of marijuana into this area is recent as compared to other localities. <coughs> Excuse me. Number three, the cost of marijuana is low and therefore within the purchasing power of most persons. Four, the distribution and use of marijuana is centred in Harlem. Five, the majority of marijuana smokers are blacks and Latin Americans. Six, the consensus among marijuana smokers is that the use of the drug creates a definite feeling of adequacy, as you said. Yeah. So good. I just feel okay. Like yeah. most of the time I feel like I'm shit. <laughs> I smoke. I feel like, all right, yeah. you know what? I'm all right. It's all good L- to the Life's head. okay. Yeah. I, can, I can get through another day. Right. You know, that's... <laughs> What about the uh, raping and the superhuman strength? Well, I'll get to uh, it later. no, I'm I haven't. Tired. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I'm not smoking the wrong weed, the right kind of weed for that. Um, seven, the practice of smoking marijuana does not lead to addiction in the medical sense of the word. Eight, the sale and distribution of marijuana is not under the control of any single organized group. Nine, the use of marijuana does not lead to morphine or heroin or cocaine addiction and no effort is made to create a market for these narcotics by stimulating the practice of marijuana smoking. 10. Marijuana is not the determining factor in the commission of major crimes. 11. Marijuana smoking is not widespread among school children. 12. Juvenile delinquency is not associated with the practice of smoking marijuana. And number 13. The publicity concerning the catastrophic effects of marijuana smoking in New York City is unfounded. Hmm. So this is 1944 this came out. The fucking LaGuardia, Mayor LaGuardia, and and I have to say that um, he is still, I saw there was a a survey done um, like in recent years asking Americans who the greatest mayor ever was and LaGuardia was at the top. Wow. Um, now, Harry went on the attack, as you can imagine, um, in his 1953 book, The Traffic of Narcotics. He called the LaGuardia Report hollow and superficial, and he blamed it on uh, Hollywood degenerates. Um, and they were like, hey, this is New York, dude, but okay, whatever. <laughs> um, and and, and a, in a later book called The Murderers, The Story of Narcotic Gangs, he called the LaGuardia Report a printed invitation, a government printed invitation to youth and adults to go ahead and smoke all the reefers they felt like. 
This guy's got and a as you up said, it was Yeah, go ahead. It was around this period in the late 30s when the FBN started producing the classic anti-marijuana propaganda films like Reefer Madness, which I tried to watch a month or so ago, and it's terrible. Like I couldn't get more than 10 minutes into it. It's just so badly done. Um, not like The Room badly done, which is fun to watch. This is just badly done. <laughs> just badly, badly. Um, I got you. Badly, badly. So let's talk about LaGuardia just to wrap up. Fiorello Enrico LaGuardia. Hold on. Bef- um, well, tell you what. You, let's finish up with LaGuardia, and then when we start the next show, I, I dug a little bit into that degenerate Hollywood comment uh, about some arrest of some actors and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll save that for the beginning of the next episode. All right. All right. Well, maybe do it in this one. I don't have a huge amount on, on LaGuardia. I'm not going to do a whole fucking bio, oh, but gotcha. um, just, just a couple of things that I was uh, reading about. So he was the 99th mayor of New York City, did three terms, 1934 to 1945. He had previously been elected to Congress, 1916 and 1918, and, he, and then 1922 through 1930. Uh, how tall are you, Ray? 5'5". Five, five. He was even shorter than you. He was 5'2". Nailed it. <clears throat> yeah. Of course, he was a man. Um, and he was, he was called the Little Flower, which is what Fiorello means, the oh. Little Flower, which I think is going to be my new nickname for you. Um, <laughs> my Little Flower. Now, despite being a Republican, he was a big supporter of FDR's New Deal. And as the mayor of New York, he did a lot of work on the transit system, unified the transit system into the the system of subways that we know and love today. Mm -hmm. He uh, organized building of low-cost public housing, public playgrounds and parks, built airports, reorganized the police force, got a lot of corruption out of the police force, defeated the Tammany Hall political machine that we've talked about in earlier episodes, uh, got rid of corruption in New York government and re-established employment on merit instead of patronage Wow! across New York. So he, he, he was much loved by particularly the, the poor, I guess, uh, and the, the disenfranchised in New York. Mm-hmm. But here's the main story I wanted to tell. During World War II, his sister, Gemma LaGuardia Gluck, ended up in a concentration camp. Now, she was living in Budapest with her husband, who was a Hungarian Jew, and they both were arrested by the Gestapo when the Nazis uh, conquered Hungary. Now, Adolf Eichmann and Heinrich Himmler knew that she was LaGuardia's sister mm-hmm. and ordered her to be held as a political prisoner. She and her husband were sent to the Mauthausen uh, concentration camp in Austria. He died. Her daughter and son-in-law and baby grandson were also in a concentration camp. The son-in-law died. Um, But at the end of the war, she was released, managed to get word back via the Americans who came into Hungary, back to her brother about her location. He didn't know where she was. He knew that she disappeared, didn't know where. Yeah. Um, And – he worked to get her, her daughter, and her grandson on the immigration lists, but he said her case was the same as that of hundreds of thousands of displaced people and no exceptions can be made. Damn. So despite the fact that he was 
a powerful politician, and at the time, after World War II, he was the director of the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. He said, no special treatment for my sister. It took two years for her to be returned to America. Um, she got back in May 1947, where she was reunited with him only four months before he died. I wonder if the first thing she did when she walked up to him was kicked him in the sack. Thanks a lot, brother. <laughs> Would, well, yeah, you know, my, my take on it is either this guy had really fucking hardcore ethics. Right. Or he just didn't like his sister, really. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, you know, um, just, I, look, I don't think we could make it. Everyone's like, no, it's fine. Make an exception. It's your sister. At least, no, look, no, really. Uh, just just don't. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. you know, look. And, he, and on his sister, he's like, look, I tried. <laughs> I did everything I tried I to get you back. Yeah. But, you know, they're telling me that uh, I can't <laughs> make exceptions for family. Um, you know, what am I going to do? Yeah. Hands are tied. <laughs> I pulled so many strings, but none of them worked out. I miss you, sis. <laughs> Be <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Um, uh, also, yeah, when, after when he died, he left no provision for her in his will, and so she was like poor and destitute for the rest of her life. Oh. So it kind of it sounds like he didn't like her yeah. very much. She's like, I told you not to marry marry that fucking Hungarian Jew. That's right. Maybe I told was, you that was a bad idea. Yeah, probably anti-Semitic. No, I don't know, but yeah, there, there's 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 more there than than what we know. Um, Speaking of Jews, yeah, wow. Okay. Um, in a, in a, in our next episode, we're going to get into Jewish criminal organizations. Yeah. But yeah, you wanted to finish off with uh, just, your note? Just real quick. So after the LaGuardia Commission comes out with its report, pretty much shredding Anslinger's um, life's work, uh, he, he says it's the de- degenerate Hollywood aspect, and he and he pretty much launches an attack on on uh, Hollywood. And one of the most high-profile high arrests is actor uh, Robert Mitchum. Uh, Hollywood... Um, uh, was pretty much trying to take care of their own. They would tip off these actors when there were when their uh, cops were coming around. But one night, Robert mentions with some friends, and there's going to be a sting operation. But for whatever reason, uh, he is not given word of. He's not tipped off about this, so he gets busted. He has to go to a county jail for about a week, um, and then he spends after that he spends 43 days. Um, March 16th, excuse me, February 16th to March 30th at a prison farm. And um, the good news for people who like Robert Mitchum is this doesn't hurt his career. Right after films, certain films came out after his arrest, they took off and he became obviously a much bigger star. But some of the other people uh, who were arrested, mostly the females there, their careers were ruined. Uh, But the point is, so he gets arrested. You were supposed to tip off the big time actors, let them know so they can, you know, Put the, put the joint out or whatever. He doesn't get it, but it doesn't hurt his career. Uh, the conviction was later overturned by the Los Angeles court and district attorney's office on January 31st, 1951, a couple of years afterward, afterwards, because it was the entire thing was exposed as being a setup. You can arrest people, but you can't entrap people. And that's what they were doing because Anslinger did want the big Hollywood stars um, tipped off so he can nab him. So the point is, Hollywood gets so afraid of this guy that when scripts are coming out from now on and there's any mention of marijuana, they send it to him first to approve, disapprove, change lines, edit, whatever, before they actually start uh, making the film. So this guy, 
had power everywhere. The country, excuse me, white America loved him. Hollywood was afraid of him. His budget is going to keep getting increased over the years. He's going to bring on more agents. This guy is, for whatever reason, untouchable for decades. And he, and out of many of his many victims, Hollywood was one of them. Let me read a review before we go. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the second review we've read out uh, on this show recently from Airs Phoenix from Canada. Now, <clears throat> Airs Phoenix, uh, the, the last time I read a review from Airs Phoenix, it was just my review didn't show up. I wrote six paragraphs of gold and now they aren't showing <laughs> That's up. That's right. I remember. And I think we said we were going to send Airs Phoenix like half a mug yeah. with urine in it. Yeah. Um, so Airs Phoenix wrote another review. Um, so this uh-huh. is the third time I have written this review. To be fair, you guys read out my shorter review and made fun of me and said you would send me half a coffee mug with Ray's urine in it. But instead of taking the easy way out and emailing you guys and getting my free gift, I'm going to put more effort in again because I love the show so much. Oh, thank you. I'm going to try and not swear in the review as much because that is my theory on why it has been repeatedly taken down. This podcast is a history of the Yalta Conference. No, wait, that's another (laughs) podcast. It's a history of the War of Alexander the Great's successes. No, wait, that is still yet another one. It is a thoroughly researched history podcast on contemporary issues that shape the modern world. Cam and Ray give an extensive, and I mean 10-inch extensive, background into a variety of subjects that include the Syrian civil war, gun control, and the war on drugs. Ray does some good research, but Cam is borderline obsessive. A conversation between the two often begins as follows. Cam, so Ray, did you do some research on Bashar al-Assad? Ray, well, yes, I did. I learned he was an optometrist. Cam, that's good, Ray. But did you find out his second grade teacher's sister's dog's name? Ray, uh, no, I did not. Cam, well, for fuck's sakes, Ray, do you ever do any reading at all in your life? Why are you so lazy? Well, I made some phone calls and connections and travelled to Europe and the Middle East and actually did some research, and guess what? His dog's name was Caesar. How awesome is that? (laughs) 
This is one of the most informative podcasts I listen to and gives me a cornucopia of knowledge. I think you can get a cream for that. And uh, random facts to throw out at dinner parties. I've been on the Cam and Ray journey for almost four years now, and I can honestly say they feel like old friends, and it's hard to think of my life without them, Stan, Barry, and D'Angelo. <laughs> They've been with me through the entirety of my university degree, beginning in the first semester of freshman year and ending with my graduation this spring. Congratulations, Ayers yes, Phoenix. congrats. They have been with me through the beginning, middle, and end of a three-year relationship. Congrats on that, too. Sure. Um, nah, you know, no good relationship ends. Come see, come you know, see. Yeah, everything has a beginning and a middle and an end. Even yeah. the best relationships have a beginning. That's natural. That's that's nature. Plants, seasons. My penis. Life. Right. As a, as a journey. Uh, they have given me a new appreciation for a knowledge of history, philosophy, and current events, and I'm humbly thankful for having them in my life. Please keep up the good work, guys. With love from Canada, David. P.S. When you mentioned on the gun control episode that you picture Canada as basically being like the movie The Revenant, that movie was filmed less than an hour from my house in Alberta. I got a good chuckle from that. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, well, again, this is your second chance. Send us an email with your uh, name and address and we'll send you a token of appreciation. This time without Ray's urine in it. Actually, um, I'm going to send him two halves, both with urine. So congratulations. Mm-hmm. One uh, uh, after you've eaten pineapple and the second <laughs> without. See if you can tell the difference. Um Speaking of Canada, we made fun of Canada. Well, I made fun of Canada on an episode, I think, of BTFN uh, this week, and I got a lot of emails from Canadians like, what about this? What about that? What about that? Fuck you. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Still not giving you any credit for anything, Canadians. <laughs> Fucking, you're, 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 second rent, you're second rate New Zealanders. That's what I oh think of God. Canadians. You know? It's like the- goes, yeah. <laughs> out of all the former members of the British Commonwealth, you've got Australia at the top, then New Zealand. Then I think uh, Gibraltar. <laughs> then right. Canadians. No, I'm only kidding. Lovely people, Canadians. I've yeah. only been once. Loved it. Loved it. Cold as fuck. <laughs> when I went to visit uh, Tony and Alex Kynaston and David Markham and Trevor Tuck, had a coffee with while I was there. Lovely, lovely place. Liked it a lot. Well, I only went to Toronto. I don't know the rest of Canada. I've heard Vancouver's nice. But it is great. I'd like to go back to Canada more. Let's do more. Yeah. Let's do another. Although Can- they, that was the place. They didn't really want to let me in the country, remember? I got, I got anally bloody <laughs> molested trying to get into the country. <laughs> Fair enough, too. I, I forewarned them. I called ahead. Of course you did. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. All right. We're out. Back next time with more on... Uh, yep. Jews. Yeah, hold on. Before actually. you play, before you play the music, Canadians, this is for you, Amanda Kay. I want you to walk up to Cam, put your hands on his shoulders, and whisper, "This is from the little flower," and kick him in a sack. Only problem to get to put a hand on Michelle or Amanda would need to get on a ladder first. Do what you uh, got to do. Do what you got to do, Amanda. Okay, love you.